My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. This past Monday night, I was down at the city of Hillsboro. uh, I'm on a task force to wrestle with the challenge of homelessness in our downtown core and uh, the businesses that are there. And how do we, you know, work with taking care of the needs of the homeless men and women that we have in our cities, particularly downtown. And yet also, how do we take care of our commerce? How do we take care of the economy of the downtown core there? And uh, we've, we've been meeting a number of times, and it's really great. A lot of wonderful people on there. Uh, the mayor and the chief of police are on there, too. Um, but um, they're wonderful. But, um, we, you know, we, and then wrestling through this last Monday night, we were talking, and the question was, okay, now what do they need? And there was a whole list of amazing things, like lockers and showers and mail and stuff like that, mailboxes. And, and I was thinking about all those things, and yet, for whatever reason, my mind was kind of drifting as I was thinking, of, much like yours does during my sermon, so I'm like you. Uh, my mind was drifting, and I kept thinking about this word. I kept thinking about the word home. And as I'm looking at all of the opportunities that we would love to, to give and serve, showers and, and care for folks that are homeless, I kept thinking about the word home, and what does the word home mean? It's not a house, because, uh, you know, it's not just a place. It's more than that. It's an identity. It's safety. It's security. You know, we work so hard in our culture to carve out a space. Uh, We literally do that. We dig out the earth, we lay a foundation, and we build a house, or we pay people to do that. And that is our home. And we paint it the way we want it. We decorate it the way we want it, especially at Christmas time, right, with the lights and the tinsel, the tree. We go home, and we feel at home there. And that's such a meaningful word because, again, it's more than just a location. It's an identity. And when we think about home, it's this place that we can rest, a place where we can call our own. And, you know, I know this is going to sound silly to say this, but if you're homeless, you don't have a home. You might have a location. You might have a place to lay your head. You might have a place to take a shower. You might have a place to, you know, check your mail. But you don't have a home. And a home is so important for you and for me. We get so much of who we are and identity and our feeling and our relationships based on our home. We even do this in culture because when we introduce ourselves, we talk about where we work, we talk about all the things we love to do. But one of the key questions is, where are you from? We love that question. And, uh, you know, if you're from the South, we we already know that because the way you talk, Um, you know, there's an accent. But if you're from the South, uh, if your home is the South, you grew up with certain cultural ideas and certain 
values. If you're from the east or northeast, um, you know, you might be nice. Chances are you're kind of rude, or at least we, we think that because you're just so blunt with everything you say. I guess it's the freezing weather. You have to just get the words out. I don't know before they freeze. But, um, you know, my friends from New York, they're just like, Right there, it's like I stopped being offended. Years ago, I was getting some coaching from a pastor, and I was going back there a number of times, and I noticed that everybody wore black in Manhattan. I was walking the streets of Manhattan. Everybody's wearing black. Nobody's looking up. They're just looking down on the concrete, and nobody's talking. And so I started wearing bright colors, smiling, and introducing myself to people. You could have... Man, it was amazing. They thought I was a freak. And, I, you know, it was just, it's like a different culture, right? Uh, now, I grew up in the, you know, Midwest early on. That's where I was born, so I'm from there. The Midwest has a certain culture. The you know, Indiana, Ohio Valley, that's where my family comes from. Very, very important culture and how that relates. Uh, then I moved to California, which totally, radically changed my life, dude. It absolutely... <laughs> It just stoked all of the rest of my life. It really did, because I experienced a different culture. The West Coast is completely different from the Midwest. Um, And now I live in the Pacific Northwest, which has a culture. Uh, My wife and I were just in Seattle, participating in a friend's wedding. It was a great opportunity. And even Seattle has a different culture than Portland. And so with this, we kind of wrap ourselves around where we're from, and we carve out a piece of this place that's our home. In fact, some of you, and I'm excited to say this, we have people from all over the world that attend Sunrise. We've got, you know, folks from India. We've got folks uh, from, you know, Asian countries, Japan and China. We've got folks uh, from East Africa, West Africa. I mean, all around, we have people from the Middle East. And what's beautiful about that is that we kind of come together, and as the family of God, we worship and celebrate together. But even you have a home that's different than our home, your cultures and customs. And what's important about home is that we go there, right? that we go home. And Christmas especially is a time when we think about going home because that's a place of safety. That's a place of identity. That's a place of security. And when we go home at Christmas time and we travel home or we have people in our homes, it's a meaningful experience. When I was uh, just a child, you know, being born in in Indiana and yet moving a lot to different places in the United States. We were gone a lot. Um, One school year, I was in three different schools. And it was a challenge to ever consider a place home because I knew uh, it was always just transition. I mean, to be honest, home was the back of a car as we traveled across the United States. But I loved the Christmas song, and it meant so much to me with this lyric, over the river and through the woods, the grandmother's house we go. Because... We would go home to Grandma's house in Frankfort, Indiana. And we would go home to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and that was a place I knew. I knew every square inch of the inside and the outside. I knew what it looked like. I knew what it smelled like. I knew the people that were there. I knew when I walked in, I would feel this feeling. I mean, I still go to places that have the old wood paneling. Anybody? You still have some of that? It's like, that was my grandparents' house, paneling everywhere, you know? And it was like, but that's home. And I remember that place as a place of identity for me. And you and I long for home. And yet the funny thing about the Christmas story is that nobody was home, right? When we we finally get to December 25, we we know this, that Mary and Joseph aren't home, the wise men aren't home, the shepherds aren't home, the angels aren't home, Jesus isn't home. I mean, nobody's home, right? 
In fact, Mary and Joseph had to travel there. They were from a home in Nazareth in the North Galilee area of Israel. They had to travel over 100 miles south on foot or on donkey to get down to the area where Jesus would be born, which was Bethlehem, because Joseph was the father, the earthly father of Jesus, and his descendant was, you know, from King David, and he had to go to his ancestral home because of a census. And that would have been an incredible journey, especially, think about this, a young gal who's pregnant and ready to give birth, and she's on a donkey, or she's walking, or she's moving, very uncomfortable. A hundred miles, how long would that take? How many miles could you travel on a donkey before it'd be like, okay, Joseph, I'm not going to tell you this one more time, I have to go to the bathroom, okay? (laughs) Or we've got to stop. And that would have taken a long time to get to their ancestral home, but they still weren't really in their home. And that was a arduous journey, an incredibly physically painful journey, no doubt. But today I want to talk about a different kind of journey that Mary in particular had to go on. And it was an internal journey. It was an emotional journey. It was a journey that took her to faith. And it's long before Jesus was born. And this is when she first found out that Jesus was going to be born and she as a young woman was going to bear the Savior of the world. Last week, we looked at Zechariah, and Zechariah's story, and, and all the stories we're looking at, this Songs of Christmas is in Luke chapter 1 and 2. But we saw Zechariah's story. He's a priest in the temple, and he's offering up incense. His wife, Elizabeth, they're both very old, and she hasn't been able to conceive. She's barren, and so they're going to die without a son, without an heir. And an angel shows up and reveals himself to Zechariah. Well, as I started looking at both stories, which are interwoven in Luke's narrative, I saw um, the similarities, but more so the contrasts between the stories. And I just thought, you know, as you turn to Luke 1, you can get there. I I thought about this. Um, The announcement of John's birth, uh, John the Baptist, he would later be called, the baptizer, the one who was the forerunner, make the way straight for the Savior, the King Jesus. John's announcement... Um, showed that the Lord answered a prayer of an older couple who had been praying for a baby. Uh, Mary was not praying for a baby, okay? Um, There's no indication that she was just hoping for a baby out of wedlock, right? Um, on, On the one hand, Zechariah's, Elizabeth's heart was filled with joy, It was a very public understanding that this son was going to be born. He was of a high status. He was a priest, right? Mary, on the other hand, you know, there's really no reason to celebrate at first because imagine the social stigma, the religious stigma that would have happened all around her and her family and her fiancé to find out this young girl. And she was young. In that culture, 12, 13, 14 years old is when a young gal would get married. The man would be 15 to 18. He'd already interned or, you know, basically, you know, was an apprentice under his father. And so he was working with his father, preparing a house because they're betrothed, which meant there was a legal document saying they'd be married, but they weren't married in the sense that they hadn't consummated the marriage bed. They hadn't had sex yet. And so they're on this journey of getting ready. And in the middle of that, Mary experiences this message that she's going to have a child. That would not have been a cause for celebration. Uh, John is described by the angel Gabriel as a man who would be great in the eyes of the Lord. That same angel Gabriel describes Mary's son Jesus as being very great. 
It's kind of fun when you look at the Old Testament, the first book, Genesis, the first two chapters, when God describes the creation of everything, it says at the end of every day, he said it was good. As he looked at what he had made, it was good. But the last day, the sixth day, when he finished the the culmination of everything, mankind, Adam and Eve, he said it is very good. And here, John's good. John's going to be great. This guy, Jesus, he's going to be very great. In fact, he is going to be the heir to the throne of David and be the son of the Most High God. John's birth was remarkable because of the advanced age of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Jesus' birth was remarkable because Mary was a virgin. Luke, in fact, says it twice, uses that word, to reiterate, reemphasize the fact that this is just a young gal that has never slept with a man before. And then finally, and this is what I want to dwell on today, you've got the different responses of the ones who heard the message from Gabriel. Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, and Zechariah's response is, how can I be sure this is going to happen? It just, I, I, can you give me a sign? I'm like, I'm all the sign you need, right? And so we saw this last week that Zechariah was silent. He couldn't speak for the whole nine months until he wrote the name John out and could speak and praise the Lord. Uh, Mary's response, we'll see today, is amazing. In fact, it's hard to fathom from a young girl like this the response that Mary gave. And it is a response, uh, there's fear in there, no question, but a faith. And she's willing to do whatever God wants. All right, so if you're there, Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at on our big wall Bible here, uh, starting in verse 26, and uh, we're going to look here. We're going to, you know, kind of interweave the stories because they're back and forth, but it's back to Elizabeth. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, that would have obviously shocked a young gal, shocked any of us, right? Okay, and that's the response. Confused, it says, confused and disturbed, to put it lightly, right? Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. I mean, why are you, who, who are you talking to? Is there someone behind me? Am I, you know, you can go to Nazareth today, and it's a modern village, a modern town, and you can go to a, a church there where supposedly the, the, the area was where Mary received this vision, and there's a home in the area where, you know, supposedly Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. But the fact is, it was just a normal life, and she's out there, and she's doing her work. She's doing what, a, you know, a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl would do, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up and says, you're favored. I don't, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, what's going on here is that there was this set of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And the Messiah, although there was a lot of mystery surrounding it, the Messiah was Uh, confidently going to come for the Jewish people. In fact, by the time Jesus came, uh, historians tell us there was messianic fever, that everybody wanted to know when, and they had these theories and these ideas, and they had these sayings that the Messiah is going to come. And so everybody was waiting for the Messiah because they had read the Old Testament, the the Jewish Bible, and they had done the chronology, and they had read uh, Daniel's books, and they knew that there would be a throne, uh, you know, that the son of David would sit on, and there would be a kingdom, and they were crying out for salvation from the Romans who were over them. And so they knew this, and they were excited about this and they were waiting for this and 
Gabriel connects the dots, says this is the one that everybody's been waiting for. Well, good question, Mary. Her thing is this, how can this happen? I'm a virgin, you know. I, 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 I did go to school, and I remember my health class, and this is not how it works, okay? <laughs> the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. You see, it's important in, in Jewish culture and life and heritage that, um, that descendants is through the mother, not the father. And so even though Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus, he wasn't the physical father of Jesus. And Mary was the physical mother of Jesus. And so the sin is passed through the line of Adam. And, and so here you have the situation where it's like, oh, hold on, how can this happen? I've never been with the man. And he explained it, that this son is gonna be born holy He's going to be without fault, without sin. This is how he will be able to die as a sacrifice for our sins because he'll be born of a virgin. What's more, the angel says, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the Lord, the word of the Lord will never fail. I love that. The word of the Lord will never fail. You know what? Gabriel's doing. He's just quoting the Old Testament. He's just pulling these stories and these prophecies and these statements and these words from the Psalms and the prophets and putting it together and communicating it to this young gal and saying, now is the time that all eternity has been waiting on. I love her response. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Wow. I'm just a humble servant. If if that's what God wants to do with me, I sign up for what God wants, and God will take care of me. I love it. Uh, In the story, we skip because it goes to John's story again, but then it finally gets back to where we see Mary connect with Elizabeth. It's a beautiful thing. It says, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. So Judea is the countryside, and the hills there would have been toward the Mediterranean Sea. And so as a priest, he wouldn't have lived, you know, in Jerusalem proper. He would have lived somewhere else and come in for his priestly duty. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. Now check this out. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her. Isn't that amazing? And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Somehow the baby, John, knew what was going on. The Holy Spirit was in him from birth. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Isn't that beautiful? That this older, distinguished, from the priestly line of the Levites, this wife of a priest, looks at this young relative girl and says, I'm not not even worthy for you to come into my home This is amazing that you would come. I mean, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. Isn't that amazing? In in your small faith, in your, your tiny little life that you've lived so far, you took God at his word and you're acting on that. This, uh, 
This week, Friday, my wife and I traveled up to Seattle uh, to participate in a, a, a dear friend's wedding. We've known her for, you know, 25 plus years. And we were, it was exciting. It was a joyful time. And there's this school, university, that meets on the campus that, of a place that used to be a Catholic monastery. And it's beautiful. It's unbelievable. The architecture, the structure of it. And they were married in the chapel. And I'd seen some pictures online, but nothing compared to walking into this chapel. Um, it's very old world. It was built in the 50s. A lot of European components and marble and things were brought over. And um, very different from what we experience in, in a Protestant church. And uh, I was there to give them First Communion. It was, it was kind of exciting, but I'll be honest, it's kind of a little weird for me because I'm a Protestant, okay? And I'm going to give communion on a Eucharist table. So you know, even close to what that means, they're, they're different, right? There's a different understanding. And, and so as I was doing this, I was able to celebrate the beauty of this room and what was going on. But I also noted that on one side of the auditorium, the chapel, which is shaped in a cross, very European, is John, the disciple of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I was acutely aware of the fact that you know, that in Catholicism, Mary is deified and venerated in a way that we don't deify her and venerate her. We do not say that she's anything more than a young woman who was blessed to carry Jesus. And I think our problem as Protestants is we don't appreciate the beauty of Mary. And because we're so afraid of thinking something or mistaking something or giving a statement that someone might think something, that we pendulum swing all the way over and we just ignore Mary. And that is so wrong for us. Because Mary, as a young woman, she was blessed. In fact, we're going to see her words, unbelievable young gal. Unbelievable young gal. Her wisdom, her maturity. And God did bless her. And God favored her on this young, lowly servant girl, she'll call herself, to give her the Son of God. And that Mary was the mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we, out of fear, I believe, out of response or reaction probably, we stick Mary off in the corner and we don't even mention her. She is so much a part of the Christmas story that if we don't elevate her to the status that Gabriel elevated her to and that Elizabeth elevated her to, we will miss out on the beauty and the tension of the story of Christmas now, here it is, my friends. This is Mary's song of Christmas. This is her Magnificat. It's beautiful as she says these words. And just follow with me this young, we're going to say 13-year-old girl, as she exclaimed this. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows his mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. She goes on to say, he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Isn't that amazing? There was no OMG, LOL, you know, 
There was nothing like, you know, you're not going to Snapchat this one kind of thing. You know, there's no Instagram, Facebook status that's going to explain this away, you know? And it says, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. Now, two thoughts there before we get back into the Magnificat. Three months, so John's probably born, and she probably gets to see John born. Major celebration. Also a little fear. <laughs> okay, is that's going to happen to me? But she goes back after three months, so she's obviously pregnant by this time. That'll be tension we'll talk about. But let's look at the Magnificat. Let's look at her words. Um, Mary is a, a beautiful example of a young woman that immersed herself in Scripture. She knew her Bible. She knew the Old Testament inside and out because so much of what she says is a collection of, again, just like Gabriel, the Psalms and the prophets and the writings, the whole Old Testament. Here is a young gal that connects the dots from Abraham, the father of their faith, all the way to her. My wife and I were in Israel three years ago, no, I'm sorry, five years ago for a Life of Christ class, and we spent a couple weeks there with a friend of ours, Cindy, who's our teacher. She's going to be leading our Israel trip this coming spring, and she's a very knowledgeable, beautiful gal who's just a great teacher, and as we got to this passage in the life of Christ, she made this statement. She said, do you realize there are no 30-year-old men and women in Israel? We're <laughs> sitting there thinking... Do they, like, go on vacation for a year? What, what does that mean? She said, no Jew is 30 years old. Every Jew is 3,000 years old. She said, you know, people in the Middle East, Jews, Arabs, they, they stand facing the past. See, we, in our Western culture, we stand facing the future, right? Everything for us is about what's going to happen, our plans, our goals, the next thing, our retirement, our job, our vacation, and we face the future, and we, we push, the side, push aside the past, and we face the future thinking about what's going to happen. But, but Mary, just like a typical Jewish person would have done at that time, and even today, they face the past thinking about how their life connects to God's promises and how they are a part of God's plan. And I think we in the West, we really miss out on the beauty of that. So the last day we were on this two-week trip, on the life of Christ. My wife had seen some jewelry at a store uh, an, an, in the Arabic quarter of, uh, you know, uh, the Muslim quarter there on King David Street. We were going down there and beautiful place, beautiful jewelry. Um, and my wife said, hey, do you want to go shopping for jewelry? To which I said, yes, can you give me a knife so I can stab my eyes out? Um, no, I didn't say that. I just thought that. I said, yes, dear. No. So we went down to the shop. It was a beautiful shop. A lot of jewelry. Ama amazing art. Amazing art. She had seen this uh, bracelet that she wanted. And so we were there for <clears throat> a long time. And, um, and so the, the best thing I ever heard was when I came in, the, after she started looking, the man, the shop owner, looked at me and says, hey, we have free Wi-Fi. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> started updating my Facebook status with pictures and things like that. That's great. You know, emailing people waiting in Jerusalem, you know. Um, then, he, then he said, you want some tea? It's like, yeah, it's incredible hospitality. And I have some tea and kind of talk a little bit. And he said, um, you know, a little bit about his family. I said, so how long have you had this shop? He said, 600 years. I'm like, <coughs> <laughs> can you run that by me again? He goes, uh, this shop's been in our family 600 years. Okay, 600 years. I have no way to process that information. 
600 years. I said, tell me about it. And he did. And he talked about how the shop had been given to he and his brother and they both led it and they were going to give it to their sons because it's a family shop. And he was able to talk about the generations of shop owners that were part of his family. And, and he talked about the original shop owner. I mean, he knew all these stories. And he was talking about how important it was that they owned this piece, that their family would forever own this little piece of land in the old city of Jerusalem. And he said, come over here. And he showed me a stone in the ground and he moved the stone aside and it was a well. It was the original well from 600 years ago <laughs> that they had drawn water from that caused them to build this shop there. And he said, it still works. Would you like a drink? I said, I think my tea is fine. Um, <laughs> can never be too sure. And, um, and as I was thinking about this and dwelling on this, here is the shop owner was facing backwards. And he was looking back 600 years. He woke up every day thinking about 600 years and why his position in life was the culmination of 600 years of work and labor, of faith and belief in this shop of commerce. And we miss out on that. And we're, we're so transitory. We're so temporary. We're so tomorrow, right? And yet Mary wasn't. Mary connected the dots from Abraham through all the promises of the Old Testament all the way to her and for her nation. Now, this isn't the point of the message right now, but I want to just give a little sidebar right now. Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought about your spiritual journey, your journey of faith? I'm going to make the assumption uh, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. may or may not be true, um, but even if you're not a follower yet, my prayer is that you will become a follower and then you'll be on this journey, right? But somebody shared the message of Jesus with you. Somebody. Could have been a radio, television, could have been a personal, you know, it could have been a, a, a podcast of preaching. Somebody shared the message with you, right? And somebody had shared it with them. And somebody had shared it with them. And I know we can't do this, but can you trace your story back? We had uh, Chris Adsit, who's uh, an old Campus Crusade evangelist and a guy that wrote a couple great books that we use at Sunrise on disciple-making and connecting with God. And he was here in the fall for our disciple-making conference, and he shared his lineage, and he traced it to the guy that shared and the guy that shared and the guy that shared, and it was Billy Graham and the guy that shared with Billy and the guy that shared with the guy before Billy and all this stuff. And it was like a couple hundred years of people sharing stories of this is my spiritual heritage. Have you ever stopped to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus shared on a hillside these words, go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups, of all the ethnic groups, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And he began it, he bookended it at the beginning with, hey, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he finished it with the other bookend saying, hey, I'm going to be with you forever, so don't panic, right? That's your spiritual heritage. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus uttered some words, and his disciples, those 120 men and women, which exploded throughout Jerusalem and then finally the world, and ultimately ended up spreading all throughout Europe and then into Africa and to Asia and to the New World, right, the Americas, and all around, and somehow, some way, 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago, you responded to the message, and that there is a heritage, and you are a part of a great line of followers of Jesus. Do you ever look back and praise God for the journey of faith that you are now the recipient of? Here's a, here's a better one. Do you ever look forward and wonder 
who's going to be a person of faith in 5, 10, 20, 100 years because of you? That because you, and being active in sharing your faith, you will be talking about Jesus for 100 to 1,000 years through your descendants, right? Spiritually speaking. Or you could be spiritually barren and you could not have any spiritual kids, which is not the plan of God, my friends. Don't let the message of God end with your heritage. Continue it on. Well, when we go back to the story of Mary, and I just want to wrap it up with this, just a couple thoughts. Mary's journey of faith and trust began with anxiety, right? She was disturbed and confused. There's a whole lot of reasons to be anxious. A young gal had been faithful to her fiancé, faithful to her parents, faithful to her God, and now seemingly hasn't been faithful. By all appearances, by all testimony, she's not been faithful. A lot of reasons to be anxious and filled with fear, right? A lot of reasons to wonder, what happened to me? Why would God do this to me? Why would God allow this to happen to me, right? What are people going to say about me? What is my future? What if it doesn't work out this way? Uh, By all rights, you know, her husband should have taken her to the city gates. Her parents should have taken her to the city gates, to the leaders of the city to have her killed according to Old Testament law, right? You can just imagine the story of a young gal, say 13, right, 12, 13, 14, going to her parents, going to her fiancé, going to her friends and saying, okay, this angel showed up and said, I'm going to bear the Son of God. And it's like, oh, that's a nice cover. Seriously, would anybody buy that? She did, and she put her faith. And some of you, my friends, are living in anxiety right now. You're living in anxiety because of things that have happened, maybe things that others have done, maybe things that you've done. Maybe there's just no reason for what's happened, but you're living in incredible anxiety. And you get the disturbed and confused part of Mary's story. But don't forget that Mary's story doesn't stop there. It went on to acceptance. You know, we're afraid of the unknown. In the old maps, I love the old world maps. In fact, I looked at a couple this week. Some of the ancient maps and written in foreign language and right around them, little drawn dragons on the edge of the world, you know. This is on a couple old maps from history. Here be dragons. (laughs) It's like, we have no idea what's going on, but that's dangerous. You don't want to go there. You might sail off the world, right? Mary was sailing off the world. She was in uncharted territory, and some of you are there. Can I encourage you to take the step that Mary took, which was acceptance? Mary, her words were, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. Not that you're rejoicing in the situation. No, not at all necessarily. I mean, she did. She had reason to. But your acceptance might be, okay, God, you've got this one, right? You've got this one. You're still God. Maybe Joseph's words from the Old Testament in Genesis, okay, what others meant for evil, God, you're going to turn around for good. Or maybe, God, I have no earthly idea why you've given me this thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul says, and I prayed three times to take it away, and you've said my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're somewhere in the midst of all this, but have you come to the point of acceptance where you just say, okay, God, I'm going to open up my heart to you and say, you're going to be enough, and whatever you want to do, I'm okay with. Although I really don't like it, and I'm really uncomfortable. Have you accepted what God wants to do. Finally, Mary moved to adoration. She moved to the point of praising God in spite of what around her and what inside of her would have felt like foolishness. She said, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
we see in Mary a God-focused perspective and understanding. She traveled from anxiety to acceptance to adoration very quickly, mind you. Not as quickly as we do. But I think her example of coming to the point of saying, my soul is going to lift up the Lord and I'm going to praise Him. Is that something you've been able to get to? Have you walked that journey to where you're in the middle of the storm and you're like, I don't like it, it doesn't make any sense, I've resigned myself to this fact, I've given over to God, but it's, to God, but it's still painful. But I'm going to make a decision to worship Him in the middle of the pain. I'm going to praise Him in the middle of the pain. I'm going to cry out to Him in the middle of the chaos. And I'm going to draw near to Him in the middle of my desperation. That's what I really believe Mary's story is all about. It's a story. It's a song of Christmas. It's a song of trust, a song of faith. And what I'd like to do right now to close this part of our service before we go to one more song and be finished is just ask you to stand with me. And I want you to stand up, and we're going to close with a prayer. You're going to pray your own prayer, and you're not going to pray it out loud, so it's going to be safe. But here's what I want you to do. First of all, close your eyes, bow your head or lift up your head to heaven. It doesn't really matter, but close your eyes and hold out your hands, your outstretched hands. Your hands are out, palms open. Now, I want you to clench your fists tightly. And this, I want you to represent your anxiety and your stress and your pain and your suffering and this, this questions of why, God, why, what's going on, I don't know, and the fear that you have. Just imagine all your anxiety being in your hands and it's a fist clenched and it's tight and it's painful and you're white-knuckling it. And the blood is straining, right, to reach the extremities. And that's your, that's your situation right now. And just come to terms with it and, and view it that way, that it's too much for you to hold on to. And I want you to open up your palms and, 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 and your fists and just relax and open them up. This is acceptance. And just to cry, a physical cry, God, I just want to accept a moment of faith. I want to accept a moment of peace. I want to accept the fact that you are stronger than all of my fears and you are greater than all my weaknesses and my anxiety is going to turn in this moment because I choose to turn it to acceptance that your will be done, not mine. That's what Jesus did in that garden on the night he was to be betrayed. All the anxiety clenched up. His arms and hands were outstretched. Your will, God, I want it. And finally, would you lift up your hands and your palms to heaven? Would you stretch them out as a way to show that you are deciding to adore God in the middle of the confusion and pain and anxiety, that you will praise God, that again, just like Mary, that you will say, my soul is gonna be lifted up to God. My heart, my life is gonna be dedicated to God. You, God, are gonna be honored and praised and worshiped through me, and others will see my story and bless you and call you great, just like Jesus in the garden that night as he lifted up his hands and said, not my will, but your will be done. Father God, may this be our prayer that we would follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would follow in the footsteps of his mother, Mary, and lift up our heart and pour and cry out and sing praises to you, not as foolish people, but as people of faith, people of trust, people who are on a journey to see how your miraculous hand is gonna be played out in our lives. We pray in your name, amen.